Hello everyone, this is your host Manoj Tandon and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. Today we have an awesome guest. He's one who really doesn't need much introduction, but we'll do it for the heck of it anyways. He's Ted Harrington. Ted, for uh, those of you who who may not have seen the book, is the author of Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. He is also an executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, a very well-known ethical hacking firm uh, that has hacked cars, medical devices, password managers, that just names a few. But, you know, his clients are folks like Google, Netflix, Amazon, you name it. Um, he's he's really done the, he's the real deal. And we're honored to have him on the show. Uh, thank you so much, Ted, today for uh, joining us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. There's so many questions that we have, and we have such little time, so we're going to try and make the most of it. <laughs> so, you know, um, there, there's something while we were doing our uh, a little bit of homework on you that you said that I'm going to paraphrase, and if I butcher it, please correct me, but I, I really want to get your uh, enlightened feedback on it. Okay, so right. I think the statement was to the effect of that you can't, many companies base cybersecurity, right, on the notions of frameworks and processes of today that are based on the experiences of yesterday. Mm -hmm. And what really needs to be done is the use of ingenuity to solve these problems. And mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing this. Mm -hmm. But that statement is a powerful one to me. And and it's much is said in that. Yeah. <laughs> much is said in that. So please uh, expand on it a little bit and enlighten the audience. Sure. Yeah. So here, here's the problem I think that we've identified in this topic that you brought up, right? Is that the way that a lot of organizations think about security is, and I'll simplify the language of what we're describing, right? They say, give me the checklist right? Give me the list of things I'm going to do. I will go do those things. And inherently, that's actually not a terrible way of thinking about life in general, right? Like, I don't know. I just got a new exercise bike delivered yesterday. And I was like, where's the list of stuff I have to do to set it up? Like, literally, that's the way we're wired. We're like, give me the list. I'll follow the list. But security doesn't really exactly work that way. Because inherently, what it requires to compromise a system to arrive at a security breach requires creative thinking and requires new ways of doing things and, and requires literally expecting the unexpected. And so if our entire methodology, if our entire approach to how we're going to approach security is show me the list of things that are known to be problematic and I'll just do that list, we're we're automatically excluding creativity from the process. And hacking is by definition a creative process. And that's a really significant disconnect. So if we're trying to defend against an attacker and an attacker is creative and we're removing creativity, what have we actually achieved? Really nothing. And we've made ourselves maybe feel good. We've made right. progress relative to doing nothing, but we haven't effectively solved the problem. You're absolutely correct, right? But most security teams and departments aren't structured that way. 
most requirements aren't structured that way, right? Uh, a lot of security is driven by procurement, really. When we, if we simplify it Absolutely. down to right, procurement drive <laughs> <Right>. security, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. That, when, I, <laughs> when I was writing the book, that was, uh, that was actually kind of an interesting moment for me as I realized that. I'm like, I was thinking about our customers who are featured you know, throughout the, not by name, but their stories are featured throughout the book. And, and I was right. really asking myself, I'm like, so why do they invest in security? And my initial reaction is, you know, an optimistic guy. I was like, oh, because it's the right thing to do. Security matters. It's important. And then I realized, I was like, well, but yes, they all do believe, all of my customers do believe that. But they also realize that, hey, this is going to help them uh, build trust, earn customers, get contracts faster, stuff like that, differentiate from competitors. So procurement is driving this. And when procurement needs a way to think about like, well, how do we know it's secure? That's where we arrive at this idea of frameworks, checklists, you know, compliance with things. That's really where the problem is coming from is that there has to be some sort of shared language. And really the difference here is the companies who get security right and the companies who don't, the difference between the two of them is the ones who are satisfied with just checking boxes versus the ones who say, I actually want to think like a hacker thinks and I want to uh, understand my system in that way. And that's how I'm going to improve the system. Well, if, uh, if those categories were swimming pools, once in an Olympic sized pool and the other's a little kitty blow up thing, I, I, I'm trying to, <laughs> there's really it not is. that many <laughs> that, but that, there's a hose, there's a hose between them. <laughs> The little kiddie pool is getting filled up slowly and it's the progressive companies are in the little kiddie pool and they're winning. The progressive companies are winning in the kiddie pool right now while everyone else is like in this disgusting, like German fest yeah, pool. pool. It's gross. You want to get out of that pool, get in this. It's not a kiddie pool. It's like the Beverly Hills mansions pool, but no one's in it. Go get in that pool. <laughs> So, which which brings us to the question: Is cybersecurity for the vast majority of organizations just consciously irrelevant? I I mean, no. Uh, and right. I, I'm saying no to the way you phrase the question. Uh, Please, and maybe you're asking the question in a slightly different way. I might say yes to it, but the two parts to that that I say no to, in particular, are consciously. So, and then irrelevant. Maybe that one is where we could say maybe so yes, then maybe let me no. give let, let me give you some context on it because you're you're a smart guy and you're making some great observations there right mm -hmm. so what is um what's meant by that question is like when we at least in our limited experience when we're engaging with a variety of clients which are primarily small medium businesses that's where we focus we see a lot of times that attitude of exactly what you're saying that let's let's procure a technology let's get a checklist and let's say we did something and we can go back to our executive team in charge or to the people that are responsible for our liability insurance and our legal team and say look these are all the protections we've put in place uh we're good to go so they've made a conscious choice of doing what might be perceived as the right thing, mm -hmm. but it's not really the right thing, if you will. Uh, that's, that's a, yes, uh, that 
I would primarily agree with that. And, and that is the difference is the original phrasing was that they're, you know, consciously yes. doing the wrong thing. They're consciously doing what they believe to be the right thing. And I think that's an important distinction because if someone's listening to this show and they're saying, we well, you know, I already are. do, I do this, <laughs> this, this, and this, but if the, yeah. this, 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 and this aren't the right thing, that's really the problem. It's not that they're sitting around. I think most companies are not sitting around doing nothing. I think right. a lot of companies are doing something. It's just not the right. Th and actually that was one of the big motivations to write the book is it kind of broke my heart in a way when I see all these companies literally like actively investing time, effort, money, resources, and they're, but in the wrong thing. It's like, if I wanted to, I don't know, I'm coming up with a metaphor on the spot here. Uh, if I wanted to, um, run a race, a road race, and it's a 5k. Okay. And my goal is I want to run it faster than 20 minutes. And so I'm like, all right, I got to do a bunch of stuff that's going to make me faster. And the stuff that I'm doing is like, I read some article online and the article is like, well, here's how you run faster is you do a bunch of bicep curls and right. you, and that's it. And I'm like, fine, I'm going to do all the bicep curls in the world, but that doesn't make me any faster as a runner. And so it would be right. stuff like that. They're looking at the wrong list. So they, they very much so. And that's not a bad analogy, although that might increase your conditioning a little bit. I mean, I used to be a runner at one time. I didn't look like this always, but I mean, everyone wants big buff arms. That's, uh, real, yeah. but. <laughs> that's a separate, <laughs> totally, totally different, different topic there. But when we, um, when you look at the way which we started this conversation off, when you look at a cybersecurity program and how they're built and how uh, budgets are procured, you often have a group of people going to people who are going to write a check, trying to explain what specific pieces they're going to buy, how that's going, that might develop an ROI. That is much easier to do when you put finite boxes around things versus mm -hmm. if you try and go to them with the concept of ingenuity, which by definition doesn't have a box around it. It can't right. be in a box if it's in, if it's genuinely something new. How do you actually practically procure a budget to do what needs to be done then? Yeah, and that that is actually maybe one of the biggest challenges for any company to approach their security mission is uh, if we think about it more abstractly, you're talking about measuring the absence of something, right? So like, let's say you want to do something where you can measure the presence of something. Like I want to invest a hundred thousand dollars in this marketing campaign. And as a result, we expect it to produce a million dollars and either it does or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, you're like, well, that didn't work. We move on. Uh, with security, you're like, I want to invest a hundred thousand dollars. And as a result, we won't get hacked. And you're like, well, is it just cause we were lucky? Or was it because it worked? And you, you really can't measure that. And so what I find is an effective way for organizations to think about that is how can you correlate the investment to the reduction of attack surface or reduction of vulnerability? So can you actually measure that you have discovered vulnerabilities and eliminated them? So one of the things I talk about in the book um, is this idea that uh, we did a whole analysis of our own. It was about like 10 years okay. of data of different companies we'd worked with. And we could actually correlate level of effort to vulnerabilities discovered on average. You know, obviously okay. there's a distribution. 
Um, and you can, of course, assign a price to level of effort. So now you can look at it and say like, okay, well, you can reduce your price to you know some level, but then your output becomes significantly lower as well. And so the question becomes, uh, wh what's the sort of sweet spot? And there's this idea of an S-curve, right? Where it's like too little, just right, and then too much. Right. And we want to be right. like in that middle area. And so I give some guidelines in the book about you know how to think about that so that people can do exactly this, invest appropriately. Yeah, that... Uh... I, and I think developing the language, that's that's one part of the equation that I'm going to blame some of our fellow cybersecurity professionals on oh, yeah. is they often need to develop their skills in the language of business and they need to understand the business that they're trying to protect, what drives that business so that they can frame things in that in the context of the business. Yeah, I agree with that. I had a uh, two two interesting stories I can tell that sort of uh, draw that contrast. Um, Please, I the first story was, and and both of these stories are two different individuals who were very senior uh, security analysts at our company. And okay. the first story was when this first analyst he came to me um, with this really amazing set of vulnerabilities that he discovered in uh, routers, uh, small office, home office routers. And as he's describing it to me, he's talking about like, we did this, we did this, we did this, and we got root. And I said to him, I was like, awesome. Um, why does that matter? And he's like, what do you, he's like, Ted, you, what are you talking about? You work in, we got root. And I'm like, no, I know. But like, why does my grandmother care? And he's like, Ted, Ted I, it's root. And he like, he, he just walked away. And, you know, of course, after, we figured it out after that. But after the initial conversation was like, he, he wasn't speaking in language of why someone would care. Right. So he, he figured like that was a turning. He figured out how to communicate very, very well after that. That was a learning point for him. But the second story Great was story. a few years later with a, a different analyst. And he came to me with a, on a different uh, piece of research it was around cryptocurrency wallets. And he okay. said, uh, he said, Ted, I was able to successfully predict the keys. And I was like, awesome. And I already knew, like, just like with the root store, I knew I mattered, but I was like, I wanted to push. I was like, so why does that matter? Why would my grandmother care? And he, he said this, he didn't even hesitate. He just tells me this metaphor. And I'm like, I'm putting that in the book. And he's like, well, it's, it's like this. He said, um, imagine you go to the beach and you pick up a grain of sand. And then I go to the same beach and pick up any grain of sand. How likely is it that I pick up your grain of sand? And I was like, oh, well, that's impossible. And he goes, right. now multiply that by every beach on earth and multiply that by like a gazillion planet earths. That's how unlikely it is that I would guess your key. And I just did it 732 times. I was like, wow. oh, now I understand the like impact of what this finding is. And because he can predict the key, that means he can 732 wallets. He could go steal their money was effectively the impact. So these are the kind of things that in the security community we need to be able to do is like speak in metaphors, speak in stories, speak in business terms, speak in money, and not so much speak in the technical details because frankly, the people we're telling them to don't care. They're like, I don't care how you did it. Just tell me what it means. Exactly. I couldn't agree with that more and it's an endemic problem. Yeah. You know, you, you, we see it all the time uh, and I hope I'm not saying it and you're saying it. Maybe now it'll get uh, a broader uh, 
reach and, and people will listen a little bit better. Yeah. So, you know, one thing um, that I wanted to circle back to was your background started in psychology, correct? Is is mm-hmm. yeah. Is that your origins? Yeah. Why do, uh, do a lot of programs in cyber, in fact, no programs in cybersecurity, I'm just going to state it, not have the psychological aspects of the hacker's mindset incorporated into the training of a defender? I I don't know why they don't. Probably just because they're, it's a relatively new field in academics. Um, I mean, you can, it can be measured in years or maybe decades. Whereas like, you know, how long have we been teaching philosophy, right? Like since the dawn of academia. Um, and so it, that's probably the primary reason. Um, my, my understanding though, is that a lot of these programs do to some extent, maybe even unintentionally do in, uh, inject some of this, uh, psychological perspective. Cause you really can't study psychology or you can't study security. Sorry. If you don't think about motivation. And right. when I was studying, you know, I studied psychology in undergrad, um, I didn't exactly at the time know how I was going to apply it. I, I wasn't at the time like someday I'm going to lead a team of ethical hackers. It, it just like didn't cross my mind at the time. But I was really fascinated in uh, how people think, like why do people do what they do? Um, but then also in particular, why do the bad people do what they do? Like I studied, um, you know, like psychopaths and sociopaths and stuff like that. I'm like, why does, why can someone kill 50 people and like, like, I don't even want to like step on a bug or something, you know, it's like, how are we the same human beings? And, uh, I think understanding the way other people think and understanding that it's different the way we think, including maybe things that we are morally opposed to that, that I think that's critically important for anyone in, who's in any field, any part of the security field, but especially the hacking field. So walk us through a little bit about, um, the mindset of the hacker, like, can can you help categorize some of them? Because I know some of them are not sociopaths or psychopaths. They're yeah. extremely intelligent people like you and I trying to, um, in their mind, do the right thing. They might be working for a state-sponsored agency of some mm-hmm. kind or or what have you. So yeah, what, I would, I would actually, I'd very much agree with that. So, but first, okay, before we talk about the bad types of hackers, we should recognize that hacker is in fact a neutral term. It's hackers, not good or bad. A hacker's a uh, problem solver. They're creative. They're, they just look at something and say, Hey, can it behave differently? They're contrarian and they're committed. So that's what a hacker is. The difference is motivation. So those who are motivated to find vulnerabilities to fix systems, those are ethical hackers. That's the world I come from. Those who are motivated by something else are generally the attackers. And those fall into a bunch of different categories based on their group aligns to their motivation. But some of the common ones are things like uh, everyone typically thinks of malicious hackers are motivated by profit, which is true for some of them. So like organized criminals, definitely. But nation states, they're organized to gain a political advantage, geopolitical advantage. Uh, hacktivists are motivated to be able to make a statement, uh, individual or small group hackers. They're motivated to prove they can do it. They like the notoriety. They like the challenge, um, corporate espionage. They're motivated to gain a competitive edge in their given marketplace. 
So it really depends on the different types of attackers, what their motivation would be. And it's, it's incorrect to paint all quote unquote hackers with the same brush. I'm, I'm really glad you said that. So that comes to the next question is of the groups that you just described, is there a difference in effectiveness between them? So the motivation does that does motivation drive effectiveness? Hmm. I haven't thought of that question in that way. So let me think, reason it out loud. Um, Please. So, Sorry. Yeah, didn't so, need to put you on the spot there. <laughs> I love you. This is why I'm here. I'm, uh, <laughs> so the difference, are there difference in effectiveness between those groups? Let me answer that part of the question first. Uh, definitely. Yes. So for example, nation states, organized crime, they are very, very effective. Whereas, you know, they're, they're more effective than say, uh, an individual or small group hacker, not to say that small groups are not effective, but the difference between the two generally has to do with resources. So like a nation state has unlimited time, unlimited computational power. So in some cases, like they might even have access to the backbone of the internet. Whereas just sure. an individual is like, hey, I also have my day job and, you know, I only can <laughs> devote so much time to this. So the effectiveness is driven by resources. I mean, you see the same in Major League Baseball, right? Big market teams generally win the World Series because they have more money to pay, pay, pay players than the small market right. teams. That's why New York Yankees have so many, you know, uh, World Series. Sure. Um, but your question was, is it motivation that impacts effectiveness and I don't, I don't know if I can definitively say that someone's motivation is stronger or weaker or leads to better outcomes, but I think that because the motivation is so aligned with the type of organization that has available resources, you could indirectly say that um, some motivations are more effective, but it's not the motivation, it's the access to resources uh, is my, I'll have to think about that, but yeah. let, let's make that my draft position on this question. Okay, that that's uh, I think. Well, thanks for answering it. I, I think it's you're on solid ground there. I my this is just my personal opinion uh, that you know people who are determined to do something are going to find a way to do it. So yes. if if that if that person is or individual or set of individuals is on a mission for something, uh, even if they have limited resources there's a very good chance that they could probably pull it off. Yeah, that's I would I would probably uh, agree with that. So the maybe the question then is the degree of motivation, right? So like a small like yeah. individual <laughs> hacker, like how much do they want to get this notoriety? And if they if it is like life defining for them, if it has to do with survival for their family, like yeah, they they probably will do whatever it takes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, when you look at a lot of the ways that systems are compromised, and there's a host of them, and, and I know we don't want this to turn into a technical discussion on SQL injection or request smuggling or various approaches to phishing. There's, there's a thousand things that we could talk about on that alone. But they all on the defender side, whether you're red team, blue team, you're in the SOC, you're a threat hunter, as the case may be, there's a degree of, or you're an application developer or an OEM that's created something. There's often a failure of imagination on the part of the creator's side that 
doesn't take into consideration a design point hmm. that a system could be used in an alternative manner. Hmm. And I would, I, I know in the world, at least of uh, defense equipment development, that's actually a design point. There's a design point that's put in place for that is mm -hmm. if we have malicious use or uh, inadvertent use, quote unquote, um, how do we defend against it? That's often not taken into consideration uh, on the application development or equipment development side. And that's a mindset. Do you have any suggestions? How do we change that? Or how do mm. we get people to start thinking about those things at the onset, uh, at the inception of a system yeah. or a product? Well, I think the best way to actually successfully do that is to partner and pair those mindsets. So, because uh, they are very different mindsets. So if we think about, I'm big on metaphors. So if we think about Please. the way that like a skyscraper is built, right? So there's the person who's an absolute expert. I don't know who this person is, but somewhere out there, there's an absolute expert on building skyscrapers. And if you go to this person whose expertise is building buildings and you say to them, all right, I now need you to demo, uh, yeah, be the demolition expert on a building. They'd be like, I, I guess I kind of know. I could, like, I could reason my way through that. I could think about that. Yeah, maybe. And they'd, they'd be better than like the average person off the street, no doubt. But who's going to be better at demoing the building than a demo expert? And so that's why you, you sort of pair the two. So this is why as organizations are building things, like you're building the next whatever application, whether that's an internal application or something you're commercializing, you're selling licenses to, to businesses or even to consumers, um, you want to work with somebody who has that malicious mindset, who can look at the way something's designed and, and say, well, what if? Because they're really different mindsets. So as much as we might right. want to invest time and effort to train, let's say, developers to think like hackers, I think we can get some progress there. But think about this. Yeah. People whose profession is hacking, they spend 100% of their time doing that. Yes, It is an impossible ask to turn to someone who's a developer and say, I want you to be as good as someone who doesn't spend their time on this. Um, I have a new metaphor for this. Actually, I just last night. Oh, I'm going to work hey, this we one. We got an exclusive, the please. Right here on Security <laughs> Confidential. Say for, <laughs> You heard it here first. Uh, you heard it here first. So I saw this documentary last, uh, last night, or maybe the night before, about the, the world of solving Rubik's Cubes. Okay. And... Yes, there's a subculture that's like, there's a world championship for this. And it follows the like two, you know, the like the Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, like rivalry of these two, like best ever, the history of the sport. And they're like these intense competitors, but also love each other. And it's like, it's actually a really heartwarming documentary. But one of the storylines that they, they talk about is that um, people tend to age out of this. Because at, at a certain point in your life, like when you're, a, when you're a kid or a teenager and you don't have responsibilities, you can dedicate the time necessary to be able to solve a Rubik's Cube in like seven seconds. But once you start having a mortgage and a job and kids and these other responsibilities, you just don't have as much available time. And so once that life uh, phase happens for these champions, they wind up not being relevant anymore. And you can, see, you can like every single one of them, they track it, they like start falling down the leaderboard. And the reason is 
They just can't dedicate the time to hone their skills as well as everyone else. So if we draw that metaphor to like, hey, you're a software developer. I want you to be as good as the, the hackers who work for the nation state of China, but you still got to be a developer first. Like yeah. it's impossible. So you have to pair the two. It would be like saying in my you know, spare time, I'm going to be a Rubik's Cube champion working one hour a day against a kid who does it like 12, 15 hours a day. It's just, it's not going to happen. So when, when one starts on a new development effort, that being said, how do you set an expectation with the investors of designing for security then? Because the, the time frame here changes. In, Not necessarily. If you're going to, really? Yeah. I actually, I would say that the way you frame it is that it's more effective, less expensive. And generally, when you look at the entire project life, it's going to be faster to build security in rather than to think about it later. And I, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I can explain why. Yeah, please do, because I, I can tell you there's a lot of people listening that are going to say, you don't understand how yeah. applications are <laughs> People right now have either, they're very much listening or they're like, screw this, I'm out. They've, they've already stopped listening to an episode. <laughs> yeah. But let me, let me explain why. Okay, so I said there were sort of three parts to that, right? More effective, less expensive, and the overall project lifecycle takes less time. So I won't spend really any time talking about that's more effective. I think we would all agree that the more you think about security, the more it's baked in, the better it's going to be. If anyone disputes that, like we can revisit that. But that's probably not what people yeah. are like. That's not the point people are probably curious about right now. <laughs> the less expensive thing is, I think, surprising to a lot of people. And the reason that the earlier you build security in, the less expensive it is, is for two reasons. The smaller of the two reasons is the expense that you pay for your security partner. So like you're working with a group of ethical hackers, the fees you have to pay them are a little bit less because there's when security's built into the process, there are fewer vulnerabilities for them to have to look at because they've kind of like preempted them by being like, ah, don't make that connect to that, make it connect in this way. And then you won't have a problem yeah. there. And then that took like 10 seconds rather than, you know, five hours of testing or something. So you're able to make fundamental design choices that later on would become very difficult to do. A hundred percent. So this second piece, why it's less expensive, that was the little piece was consulting fees. The big piece is your time in remediation. So okay. like the ethical hackers, they come back to you and they're like, look, here are all the issues. Here's how you fix it. In addition to your development effort, you now need to spend development time on that. And there's a cost to that. And that doesn't show up as well on a profit and loss statement because you're already paying the developers. It's just it, the productivity hit is what you feel. And this third point that it slows you down or it takes longer or whatever. Now we have to think about the whole project life. And this is probably where people will have stumble the most, but people yeah. want to say like, this is our release date. Our release date is September 1st. That's We're going right. to launch it September 1st, but they don't think about after September 1st, all that remediation effort that they have to do from all the vulnerabilities they injected that were now discovered. And so now really the product is in its more like secure state. Maybe it's the following September, maybe it takes like a full year. And so what we, you know, what would make an investor interested in this? Of course, the investor needs to care about security right. and the product needs to security needs to matter for the product. So if you don't have those two preconditions, this argument is dead, is dead but yeah. assuming those preconditions, 
the right investor is going to say, wow, okay, this is going to, you know, your, the resources I'm investing are going to go farther because the expense goes down. It's more secure. And we don't have that problem where we're putting a vulnerable product in the marketplace. And then some amount of time later, we finally get it in a more secure state that costs us more to do. Any intelligent investor is going to understand that logic. It's just whether or not we can make the case for them. Well, let me ask you this. Another way, I'm just thinking out loud here, Ted, if would it make sense to embed ethical hackers or let's call them not maybe even hackers, but expert systems users at, in the QA cycle and let them go to town. Because the way QA typically is done today is that the QA people are given a sheet and they're like, check this, check this, check this, check mm -hmm. this. Or there's automated tools that do a variety of things. What if we started embedding people in there that can just go play and say, okay, go ahead, try break it during the QA cycle. So two, two parts to answer that question. So one is, yes, we should embed these people, but they need to have the breaker mindset. So the person who's just like the system user, they're not necessarily gonna be looking at it to break it. They're gonna be looking at it to be like, how easy or not easy is this to use? You wanna look at someone who's like, hey, this is an input field. What if I didn't put anything in? Or what if I put a command in that's there? Right. Like that's the mindset that you need. But the second part to the question is we shouldn't limit this to QA. Every step of the development process has a security aspect and we should do it at that stage. So for example, when you're in the requirements gathering stage, you're now defining, well, what problem does this system solve? Who's it for? Because you are answering those questions, you're now going to be able to determine, well, what assets will this system need to provide access to? And if we can understand the assets, we can understand what types of functionality are we going to need to design around. And once we understand the assets that this system will protect and sort of that attack surface that we're going to be designing around, it helps us think about, well, who's going to want to attack this system? That's your threat model. Threat model is three pieces. What do we want to protect? Who do we want to defend against? Where yeah. will we be attacked? You got to do that in the design state, in the requirement stage. And then as you're in design, now you can be thinking about defense in depth and like, how does that threat model play in and all that kind of stuff. So by the time you get to QA, you've already eliminated a lot of unnecessary attack surface or broken functionality, et cetera. Well, you brought up defense in depth. So I want to, <laughs> do it. I can't not go down that rabbit hole, uh, although that's a episode in itself, more, more than likely. <laughs> I like this rabbit right? hole, though. <laughs> so I, I guess here's the problem. In any development effort of any kind, there's no one starting from scratch. You're always using libraries or pre-built assets that are out there, whether that be Java, Ruby on Rails, that's a platform or language, or you're using somebody else's pre-built library functions for whatever it may be. You don't know what they've done on the security side or not done. Mm -hmm. And you incorporate them into your product. So you might be inheriting a lot of vulnerabilities that you're not aware of. And mm -hmm. even they're not aware of. Yep. So where, what do we do here? Well, the first thing is that we should assume that we are inheriting vulnerabilities. 
It's not a, our mindset shouldn't be like, Hey, maybe hopefully not. It should be like, all right, there are vulnerabilities in this thing that we're integrating. What do we now do about that? So that's a, that's an important distinction because when you start from that point, it, it makes us think differently than if we're like, hopefully not. Cause if you're hopefully not, then you're like, all right, we're just going to operate as if they're not, but if you're operating as if there are vulnerabilities, now you can say, all right, well, how would we mitigate the likelihood that this particular thing, which we, ha- we're not going to rebuild that library. Like you said, we're going to use this other component, or maybe it's even something like you're working with another company, right? You're like, we don't want to do payment processing. So we're going to integrate this payment processing platform. Sure. Okay. Well, how, how you think about the way the integration is with that third party and sort of where the delineation point is between where your system is and their system. That's where defense in depth really helps because if we can operate under the assumption that there might be a way that we can be compromised through these integrations, through these third parties, then it helps us think differently about how do we stop that? Like the, the classic metaphor is of course a castle, right? If you, a castle has, has like a moat and a drawbridge. And then there's the dudes like on the turrets with the hot oil and you've got the yep, archers yep. and then you get inside and Man, there's I've like- I've used that one so many times. Right? <laughs> and that's the reason. Because if I swim across, if all I had to do is swim across a moat and like, yeah, I hope I don't get eaten by an alligator. But like, once I get to the other side of the moat, like that's it? No, you would never do that. That's why right. castles have these layers and that's why we should have layers and systems that integrate. And that is defense in depth for everyone. That is defense in depth. That is defense. And and it's a deep, it's a military strategy, actually, that we've adopted into the cybersecurity world. Yeah. But mm-hmm. that, that's where it came from. And that's exactly right. I mean, it's a multi-layered defense. And, um, but the execution of that, Ted, is also non-trivial, right? I mean, you, you have to yes. consider, you have to make certain assumptions about what that attack vector may look like. I agree. And, and that's the benefit of doing a threat modeling exercise early in the process is you now a threat model helps you determine what level of effort are we going to put into this? So if you get in that early stage of like, okay, we're going to build this thing. And it's like an app that serves up recipes. You're like, you know what? Let's not worry about defense in depth here. But when you're like, we're going to create an app that provides, uh, that is how we collaborate on the next major blockbuster film before it comes out and generates $2 billion in box office revenue. Like we're going to want to invest in, uh, in different types of security in that type of system. So that's where threat modeling helps you think differently about what it is you have to protect and why someone might want to attack to get it. So I've got two stories on this. I, I got a story and a question actually that okay and then we'll probably run out of time but so when you brought up uh movies we actually had a customer which will remain unnamed but i'm sure the audience has definitely seen their productions a hundred percent and um they have layers upon layers in their organization structure of multiple divisional cios multiple CISOs, very large organization Mm-hmm. But in the end, when they completed production of the movie and it ended up on the cutting room floor, the editing, if you will, mm-hmm. the database where that movie was being placed was completely accessible to the entire planet. 
So when you look at Next. a $2 billion or $100 million production, yeah, right? If you knew where to look, it's been mm -hmm. since rectified, so right. you can't find it anymore. But uh, if you knew where to look, you could actually have gotten that movie six months prior to it ever hitting any kind of a theater and had your own private showing. I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, that's, that's, that's why the profession exists, uh, because <laughs> stories like that happen. It, it's real. You can't make it up. Yeah. You know, it, it's the thing. But what, when you brought up um, vulnerability modeling, stepping back to a basic level, there's this notion out there uh, as we walk up the entire pyramid of pain that we can address things with uh, vulnerability scanning or with penetration testing. And I think that's a little bit of a false god. I don't know what your opinions uh, of that is, because to me, that you really can't automate some of this threat modeling. You need a human element to it. That's just my personal view of it. I feel free to say that's BS. You know, <laughs> you're you're preaching to the choir right now. Yeah. <laughs> so automation, automation's awesome, right? Let's it's. It does so many powerful things in really any field, but in security in particular, what it does is it helps us do very manual, time-intensive, routine, repeatable types processes. We can do them very quickly. Um, it also helps us check for known vulnerabilities very quickly. So we know like, hey, there's this like whole database of different types of attacks or vulnerabilities that a an attacker might be able to reference. They're going to run some automated way to check for them. We should check for that too. So that's great. The problem is when organizations, they want to rely too much on that. And they're like, oh, automation is going to solve everything. The machines know. And they don't. Like humans need to be able to connect dots. And here's a perfect, perfect story. Perfect example. Yeah, please. Is there's a project we were working on recently, and this had two particular problems with the system. The first one wasn't that big of a deal. You don't want it to happen, but it was what's called uh, information leakage. And basically, it meant that the system was giving up information it shouldn't. In this case, it was giving up the user identifier. So any user could identify any other user. Not, not You can't even directly exploit it, but you don't really want it to happen. The second problem was where the authorization model was broken. And that means that the way that you actually changed credentials, like if you want to change your password, it didn't work correctly. So the way that it worked in most oh, systems- This is awesome. What's that? <laughs> oh, this is awesome. I can make use of this. <laughs> I would go in there, change everybody's password is what I'd be doing, but that's separate. <laughs> well- that that is actually where the story goes because what the way that it worked changing passwords was you had to supply information so like anyone who's ever changed a password so you, you only needed to, an ID that's it well the broken authorization said if you have your ID you can change the password and so with if, the information oh, leakage you combine the two and so now yeah, you can okay. do it for everyone in One. the whole system yeah so now we can change anybody's password don't not just the whole, including the admins. And so it basically meant that all someone needed to do to completely take over the whole system was have an account. You have an account, done. And that's the kind of thing. There's no tool that will do that. There's no like 
automated script that would say like, look for this, look for this, connect. It's like, no, you need that sort of creative problem solving that we've talked about. You need that contrarian thinking, the, the committed aspect that is hackers and the creativity. And so, yes, just running scans alone doesn't, doesn't get it done. You need that higher level manual effort. There's a lot of things being sold out there in the name of a vulnerability assessment, which are really more like penetration tests or maybe a vulnerability scan. There's there's a lot of uh, things like that going on out there, at mm-hmm. least that we've seen that. And I don't think anyone is ill-intentioned. I think some of those terms are just not well understood at what, by the people who are buying what they really mean. Um can you do a quick one minute differentiation between a pen test versus a vulnerability scan versus a real vulnerability assessment, which requires human Mm -hmm. interaction. As with all things, I will use a metaphor to describe. Please. I Uh, love these stories. That's everyone listens in their car. So they're they're probably going to enjoy this one. Yes. (laughs) Oh, and it's a car metaphor. So perfect. Um, (laughs) First thing we have to realize is what's happening right now. What's happening is that people are asking for penetration tests. They're being sold vulnerability scans instead as if it's a penetration test. But what they really need is something else entirely. They actually need vulnerability assessments. So those are three different things. They require different investments of time, effort, and money. And they deliver different outcomes. And the reason that this matters is that if if an enterprise is saying to their vendor, like, give me a pen test. And the vendor's like, all right, I guess I got a pen test. So they Google pen test and they don't get the thing that actually the enterprise is looking for. That's bad for the enterprise. It's bad for the vendor. It's bad for everybody. So that's why it's a problem. So the metaphor is this. What penetration testing actually is, is it's kind of like when a car maker wants to understand Oh, maybe people aren't going to like this if they're driving their cars right now because it has to do with crashing cars. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but we're, okay. we're in it now. So slow we're, down. We're gonna cr- this thing's going to crash. So what are we Hand, crashing? <laughs> hands at 10 and 2. Let's pay attention to the road, people. Okay, so um, <laughs> when an, uh, the car maker, they want to know, when they want to know how will the vehicle perform in a particular scenario, such as like yeah. a head-on collision, what do they do? They literally crash the car into the wall to see what will happen. So yep. that's kind of what a pen test is like. And a, an actual penetration test is when you take a built system. It's already been through a lot of testing. Uh, like the car is built, right? And it's already been tested in all yeah. these different structural ways. And, and you're you know what you're a- testing for though, right? You know exactly yep. what you're testing for. You're looking yes. to see if a particular system or set of systems is going to perform in X kind of way. Exactly. And, that and that's car- actually what a pen test does. Like, can someone escalate privileges in order to do X, right? Sure. Okay. So it's narrowly scoped. It's not just like open. Um, so that's what a pen test actually is. But when most people buy it, what, what most companies are selling is not that. Most people are actually selling scans. So like if you were to Google right now penetration test, you would get probably like 98% of the results you're going to get from that Google search are going to be scans. And what a scan does, a scan is more like when the check engine light comes on in your car. You stick that little thing under the dash, it queries, it interrogates the computer, and the computer says, here's how you turn it off. It's, it's only looking for known issues. It's simple. It's quick. 
but it's certainly pretty different from like, how will this car perform in a crash scenario? And that's, that's problematic, right? When people are like, oh, I'm going to crash right. the car, but I get the, like, replace the oil, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> but the third thing is actually what most people want. And that's where the, um, it's like the automotive safety department. And what do they do? They look at uh, how all the systems work together. They're like, all right, how do the side impact beams work with the airbags, work with the lane departure technology, all that kind of stuff? Because we want to think about this as a holistic system. And we want to know the unique ways that maybe our car might perform differently than, say, another manufacturer's car. We care about this particular car, how it, this unique ways this car might not perform. That's what people really want. That's when, when an enterprise is saying to their vendor or supplier, like, I need a pen test. That's what they're asking for. They're like, make it better. They're not saying do the minimum. And they're not saying look at a very, very narrowly scoped specific scenario. They're saying make it better. Think about it holistically. Prove to me that you've thought about it in all these different ways. So that's they're looking for an outcome. They're looking for unique outcomes. And that's going to require a vulnerability assessment, which requires human yeah. involvement. And it can't be done automated, which is why the people who really do them right, they do cost a little bit of money. They they, they cost a lot more. I mean, pen tests cost a lot more too. Scanning is like, you know, you can get a scan. I, frankly, you can get a scan for free. Like you can get, you can get a license for Nessus for free. Um, but most scans, you, you kind of can identify if you're getting a scan-based penetration test, I'm putting that in air quotes. Um, if it's like five grand or 10 grand or 15 grand or something like that. That's like, uh, that level of effort is a scan. Uh, they get, you know, five, 10, maybe even 20 times that price when you're talking about proper security testing that has that manual emphasis. And that scares people, right? When they're like, well, this one's 15, it says pen test. This one says pen test and it's 80. What's the difference? Yeah. And then you go to your board to get the money and they're like, well, this costs eight and this costs a hundred. What's the difference? Yeah. And right. And and it becomes a we're back to procurement again, so exactly. <laughs> full circle, the circle of life, the circle of life. Well, we're at the end here, but I we wanted to give you a few minutes to talk about whatever it is that you want to put out there. So you always have stuff going on. So what would you like our audience to know or check out? Or I do always have stuff going on. Uh, we already talked about everything I want to talk about. I want to nerd out on these security problems, but. Uh, I, I guess I would just leave the audience with this. If, if anything that we talked about today, um, it, it's stimulating your thinking about uh, a problem that you're facing or questions that you have, like use me as a resource. Like if you want to talk about, you know, booking me to keynote uh, event you have, you want to talk about hiring our company to uh, help you with security testing. You just want to like bounce an idea off somebody. Just go to tedharrington.com and everything's there. You can find how to follow me on socials, how to contact me whatever you need. And I'm super, super responsive, uh, especially on LinkedIn, uh, less so on Twitter, but on LinkedIn, I respond most of the time. So uh, I just, I want to be a resource. So let me be that. That's fantastic. Is there any way to get a signed copy of your book? I got you. Absolutely. I'll send it to you. Oh, I appreciate that. And we might want to reach out to you and maybe get several of them and get them and give them away to people who ask really good questions. Absolutely. We'd love to do that. 100%. Consider that a yes. Done. That would be awesome. You know, cool. Because that's, uh, again, our mission here is education and anything that we can do to help people uh, become better at cyber 
Hey, and maybe just better people. We got bigger dreams sometimes. <laughs> you know? I love it. I love it. But, well, thank you for having uh, me. Hey, thank you so much, Ted. It's been a real pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously, and uh, yeah, let's stay in touch.